Well, folks, have um, uh, keep Mark 13 open in front of you, please. That'll be really helpful. So here at, at uh, Robertson Anglican, uh, what we do, we, we practice uh, most of the time of the year, until, unless we're doing a topical ser series, uh, we'll practice what's called consecutive expository preaching, which means that we, we look, work through the Bible consecutively. That helps us to get the context of passages particularly. Um, but also expository means we take out from the text um, we exposit from the text itself. We want to know what the author is really saying and we try not to bring our own framework or worldview onto it and that um, we, want to, we want to see what the text is saying. Um, now, believing in that and making sure we do that, and we, we want to let God... We, we give God the microphone. That's what we sort of do. That's what we want to happen. Um, from time to time, we get tricky passages. If we're consecutively going through a book, so we are in Mark, we're going to get passages that are a bit tricky. This is one of them. Uh, it's not an easy one, and there's um, and, and it's going to take some concentration today. I hope you're in the mood for it. Uh, who isn't in the mood for concentration? Fantastic, yes. Uh, but it will take a bit of work, so try your best um, and try to follow along. We're not going to have a Q&A, an open Q&A as, as we do normally. Um, some of the questions that might come up in this passage take a much longer answer, and so uh, I'm going to make myself available just down the front at the end. If you've got a question and you want to come and talk to me about it, then um, please do. You can also put a note in the... Um, uh, the comment card and ask a question there and put in the white box at the back and then we can, I can answer that publicly next week at the start of the sermon. So you're free to, free to do that too. All right. Uh, there's an outline as well, if you haven't noticed that, in the bulletin. All right, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for your, um, your word to us today. We thank you that you are faithful, that you are kind and just you're gracious. Uh, thank you, Lord, that you speak to us. We pray that you'd help us to concentrate, help us to listen, and help us to stand firm in our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So following the 9-11 uh, the terrorist attacks, you might remember this flyer. Uh, the Prime Minister of Australia was John Howard, and he attempted to reassure the Australian public with looking at an uncertain future with these words. You can see them down the bottom, where are they? in the middle there. Be alert, but not alarmed. Who remembers that? Anyone remember that? Here we go. Be alert, but not alarmed. Uh, that is, be alert to suspicious behaviour and possible future attack. But don't be alarmed. That is, don't get paranoid and don't think something is when it isn't. Sadly, the effect in Australia, I think, was... Um, possibly typical of Australian people in general, we, we made fun of this and ridiculed the whole thing and um, <laughs> we uh, criticised the government as, as alarmist. I think that was the way it went anyway. How do you think about the future? Are you alarmed? Uh, are you alert? Are you ready? Mark 13 is a passage where Jesus speaks of the future, his future, the disciples' future and our future. Mark 13 is not an easy passage to understand and, and 20 minutes uh, that well, really today won't quite give it, you know, do it justice. This probably means, as smart as we are, that we're probably not going to get to the bottom of this passage completely. I'm not quite sure we ever will, this side of heaven. There'll still be some questions. 
Although, if you do understand it by the end of today, then make sure you come and let me know and give me all the answers. That would be wonderful. So, what should we do when we come across such a difficult passage? Well, we make sure we, are, we understand what is clear. So, one thing that is clear is that this passage is a warning to be ready, to be alert for when Jesus returns. So, three times we're told to watch out. Uh, verse 5, verse 9, and verse 23. And even add, if you like, verse 37. It's the same words. It's actually the same phrase in the original Greek language as the, Bible, as the New Testament was written in. Um, it's translated differently each time in the NIV, which is, at this point, not overly helpful because we lose the intensity of the warning. It's the same warning three, four times. Watch out. That's very clear. Now, related to this... What is also clear is that Jesus talks about things that we don't like to, namely the end of the world and death, his death and ours. The end of the world is a distant future, right? You know, well, at least we hope so. And Jesus' death is a distant past, so long ago. So we live for now, don't we? We live for now. This passage reminds us not to be seduced by the cult of the present. That, it, that life is just about now. That life is just about the presently getting through now. Uh, our life is, in fact, preparation for the future. Don't lose sight of that. Eternity. Jesus reminds us not to lose perspective. So those two things are very clear, I think. Well, let's get stuck in. Jesus begins with, well, there are two questions in verses 1 to 4. After hearing Jesus preach in the temple, his disciples comment on the beauty and magnificence of the building. Uh, they're overwhelmed by it. They look at the temple in Jerusalem and say, wow, this is just fantastic. Have a look at it. They're overwhelmed. But coming pretty close to being a wet blanket, uh, Jesus <laughs> responds in verse 2 by saying, not one stone will be left on another, every one will be thrown down. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> it's not easy for us to imagine the reaction of the disciples. Shock would be the simplest way to put it. Gobsmacked. Did he really say that? What did Jesus mean? Can you imagine uh, taking, your, um, taking your old friend from overseas? He's come back home overseas and, and uh, hasn't seen Sydney for ages, so you, you go for a walk around Sydney, you show them the sights, you, you walk around the rocks, you show them the, hub, the, um, the opera house, admiring its magnificence and architectural brilliance, and you marvel at the Harbour Bridge, and then you say, ah, it'll all come down in 50 years, you know? What did Jesus mean? What did he mean? What was, he, what was, was he just being a misery guts? Uh, one thing that's interesting as we look at the disciples' response in a moment is that they didn't say anything until they reached the Mount of Olives in verse 3. At least none of the Gospel writers record them saying anything. Maybe it's a bit of an awkward silence as they did their little bushwalk out to the Mount of Olives. Well, it seems the disciples were onto something. Jesus wasn't just talking about a building. So with a sense of astonishment of what Jesus had just said, the disciples ask in verse 4, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Now the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 24 verse 3, and I've got it up on the screen, reads like this, tell us, the disciples said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
I take it from Matthew's account and in Jesus' extended answer over the rest of this chapter in Mark 13 that two separate questions are being asked. Yet in the mind of the disciples, they're the same thing. They're closely connected. One about the destruction of the temple and the other is about Jesus' return. So let me explain. For the disciples, remember the disciples are Jews, the temple, that's the heart of Judaism, right? That's, a, that's where God dwelt. It's his dwelling place. It's almost as if God was there on earth in the temple. Jesus was saying that the time will come when all that is Judaism, the temple, will crumble and fall. Total destruction. And for the Jews, this was a clear sign of the end of all things. The destruction of Jerusalem and the end of all things, in their minds, is the same event. But Jesus will go on to say that this destruction is not a sign of the end, his return, but an example of the times that we live in. And notice too, they ask not why, but when and what will be the sign of Jesus' coming. And as we'll see, when is not what Jesus wants them to focus on, nor us. Well, Jesus' answer comes in the form of two warnings. The first warning, verses 5 and 6, Watch out that no one deceives you, for there'll be people claiming they are the Christ. Watch out for them. They are not the real deal. Don't follow them. They will come with false warnings, false hope, false promises. And, and friends, sadly, world history is littered with, and not only the first century, but it's littered with such people. People claiming to be a Messiah. People claiming to be a saviour. Uh, people claiming to have a special word from God about the future, about Jesus' return. They instill panic amongst people. Uh, Jesus even says they're sheep in wolves' clothing, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Uh, 2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 2. Leading people to misunderstanding and even death. Know your Bibles well. Know your Bibles well. Have your Bibles open when the minister comes and preaches. <laughs> know your Bibles well. Pray for discernment and wisdom. Now, in verses 7 and 8, Jesus says, Don't be alarmed when you hear of wars and uprisings, nations against nations, earthquakes, famines, fearful events, and so on. These things will happen first, Jesus says clearly. But it's not the end. That's still to come. These things will characterise history. You've just got to look, read your history books. They characterise history. They are painful and will always have them. Don't be alarmed. They are not signs of the end. See verse 7. But at the end of verse 8, Jesus says such difficult experiences are the beginnings of birth pains. That's the, the analogy he uses. Now, if you're a mother, dare I say it, a father who has witnessed the birth of his children, labour is difficult. And for many mums, it's sheer horror. Uh, screaming, moaning, sweating, crying, and that's just the father. Uh, <laughs> but soon the, that end, that will end, and the joy and miracle of birth will come. That's the analogy Jesus is using about his return and the times we live in now. Uh, when we think about the present pain and the future glory. Second warning. Again, let's focus on what is clear. Jesus says to his followers, just as there will be world trouble, there will be church trouble. Watch out. Be on your guard. 
not only for people who will try to hurt you spiritually, as false teachers, sheep in wolves' clothing, but there'll be people who try to hurt you physically as well, Jesus says. In a world that is going to end, the gospel is going to be preached, and it's going to be preached by, by disciples of Jesus, and they are going to be treated badly on account of what they preach, the name of Jesus. Christians, as they bear testimony to Jesus, will be, and verse 9 tells us here, rejected by the world, persecuted, handed over to authorities, put in prison on account of the name of Jesus. Rejected not only by the wider community, but by their own families as well. Look at verse 12. Brothers, sisters, relatives. But this should be no surprise. Uh, history tells us that, actually, it was not long, of course, uh, it was not long uh, for the disciples to experience all this at the hands of the Roman and Jewish leaders. These, the early Christians, well, they were beaten, they, they were tortured, they were imprisoned, they were put to death. Think of our series we did on Acts a couple, was a couple of years ago now. Um, many horrifically stoned to death, burnt alive. But world history is full of accounts of the persecution of Christians on account of the name of Jesus. Whether it was the reformers of the 16th century, uh, the, the saints in China of the 20th century, and of course more recently Iraq and Syria, Christians being killed for the name of Jesus. Still happening today. Now many of us thankfully, we, we probably will not experience such persecution, uh, but we may be rejected, we may be ostracised, maybe ridiculed, ignored for bearing testimony to Jesus. Why is it that Christians are not liked? <laughs> Some are, of course, yes, but i phrase that differently. Um, you know, the more open and explicit you are with your faith in Jesus, more often than not, the more disliked you are. Why is that? One answer is because we speak, as Jesus does, of a world which will one day end. If we're speaking from the word of God, that's what we'll speak of. And we speak to people who are committed to this world, as it is, a world not ending. Are people who worship and value the things of this world, as opposed to eternal things that Jesus in the gospel speaks of. And so there's a tension, there's a, there's a clash, isn't there? Between the Christian and the world around them. And so you'll be disliked as you stand against the values of this world. The values that people hold so dear. Being a disciple will not, will not be easy. Uh, Jesus says, take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. It'll cost following Jesus. It'll mean discomfort. It'll, mean, it'll possibly even mean death. But verse 13, there is the sovereign comfort of God and the promises of God in the words of Jesus. Uh, they still stand. Stand firm in them. Stand firm in him and you'll not perish, Jesus promises. Stand firm and you'll win life. Okay, well, let's look at this next little section, verses 14 to 23. It's the next little point in your outline. It's actually over the page. The destruction of Jerusalem, an example of the times. So when you see the destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus says to his disciples, which Jesus describes and prophesies about in the coming verses, Jesus says, stand firm. It's widely regarded that verses 14 to 23 describe, and, and, in, and in much detail, 
the coming destruction of Jerusalem and its temple by the Romans in 70 AD. Jesus speaks of the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong. It's a direct reference to three prophecies about the future desecration of the temple from Daniel. It's hard to know exactly who or what this is. Someone like the Syrian general Antichus Epaphanes of the 2nd century BC, who most commentators agree Daniel is referring to. So maybe Jesus also might be referring to the Roman leader at the time, following on from the example of Antichus Epaphanes. Um, the Roman leader at the time of AD, AD 70, Titus, carries on from that. It could just be the Roman armies. The Roman armies were always an abomination. There's, there's, uh, it could well be that. Either way, it won't be good for Christians, uh, and indeed Jews at that time. History tells us the Roman invasion of, in 70 AD in Jerusalem was a, an appalling time of persecution for Christians. Uh, read a bit more of that ancient history if you want to. But um, days of distress like no other, we read in verse 19, Jesus says. And he was right, of course. It was appalling. However, God mercifully cut them short for the sake of his people. But again, although this is a difficult time, it's clearly, uh, by all the gospel writers' descriptions, not the end. The Christ will not appear at this time. Verse 21 and 22 tell us plainly. And, friends, you cannot flee to the mountains when Jesus returns. It's clearly not about Jesus' return. Uh, and a believer would not want to flee to the mountains when Jesus returns. I can't wait for Jesus' returns. I can't wait for he retu- until he returns. Um, I'm not going to run away. It would be fantastic. Um, amazing. So how then should we live? Friends, it's worth pursuing, uh, pausing for a moment and reflecting on this question. How should I live in the midst of the terrible things Jesus has described and that we actually witness in the world today? as we wait for him to return, whenever that may be. Here is Jesus' focus. Jesus' focus is not a speculative uh, questions of when, speculating. It's not that at all. How should I live faithfully? That's the focus of Jesus. How should we live as we await his return, as we think about the future? And it's that subject which Jesus now addresses specifically, although still not answering the disciples directly. So... We're thinking about the return of Jesus in verses 24 to 27. uh, Jesus talks about that. Uh, We're not told much about the return of Jesus in the Bible. We get a fair bit, but not that much, which makes speculation never helpful. Otherwise, we end up with something like this picture. Um, That doesn't help. Uh, Not accurate and and just just plain weird. Um, Again, we need to ask, what do we know? So speaking of the fulfilment of prophecies... Um, speaking of the fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah and Joel, Jesus speaks about his return in verses 24 to 27. He says, but in those days, following that distress. The but is important in verse 24. It's a contrast. When the temple is destroyed, false prophets will come. Watch out, be on your guard for such deceivers. But when Jesus comes, there'll be no confusion. See that? The return of Jesus is a universe-shaking event. When the Son of Man, that's a term synonymous with the Lordship of Jesus, again, comes from Daniel chapter 7. When the Son of Man comes again and and appears in glory, this is the main event. Uh, Verse 26, Jesus uses apocalyptic uh, metaphor. Uh, The glory of God is no longer consecrated in the temple, 
but in the Son of Man, Jesus, as he comes in the clouds. Again, where everyone can see, but we'll get back to that in a minute. Let's continue reading from verse 28, if you've got your Bibles there. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree, Jesus says. As soon as the twigs get tender and its leaves come out, and you know that summer is near, even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So, what are the these things referring to in verse 30? Key question. Hope you're still with me. I'll read it again. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. What seems to me what makes the most sense in this context is that the these things are the suffering and persecution sign of the times that's been spoken of earlier in the chapter and the more specific and distressing example of the times, the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, part of Jerusalem. Uh, the generation that Jesus is speaking to right there and then did indeed live to see such things. They were alive in 70 AD, uh, as Jesus promises. So when these things, the suffering and persecution of Christians happen, know that Jesus' return is imminent. He could return at any moment. Uh, the fig tree and the absent householder parables from verses 34 and following uh, tell us that. When heaven and earth will pass away, but know also from verse 31 that what will not pass away is in fact Jesus' words. They'll never pass away. His promises are sure and certain. Okay, so I'd like to, I'd like to see, I'd like, I'd like us to see four points about the return of Jesus from what we've been talking about today that are here in Mark 13 and again we're looking for what's clear. So I've, um, uh, I've given you gaps in your outline and you can screw them down if you want to. Here's my four points. The first one, everyone will know. When Jesus returns, everyone will know. No one will miss it. It won't be like you, you, know, you missed your favourite TV show and you're, oh, well, that's a pity, isn't it? No, no, no one will miss it. Like the sun, moon and stars. That's why the analogy is used. They're things that everyone sees, the sun, moon and stars. You'll all see, we'll all know, it'll be visible. Second, it'll be distressing for some. Verse 27 speaks of the judgment that will occur when Jesus returns. Jesus talks about separating the sheep and the goats when he returns. Um, gathering the elect. He uses that word. Those who are, are, are believers. It'll be divisive. Yet for those who stand firm, Jesus will come savingly. Save to sin no more. Save from the injustice, cruelty and distress of this world to being with Jesus forever. As we say in one of our um, uh, Lord's Supper services, I think it's the one today actually, we say, come Lord Jesus, come. Because when Jesus returns... There'll be no more pain or mourning or crying or death. That old order of things has passed away. So it'll be distressing though for some because some will miss out. Third, Jesus this time will come in humility. Uh, sorry, this time won't come in humility and to serve. When Jesus returns, he'll come in victory, power and glory. And fourth, it'll be sudden and unpredictable. Uh, it's hard to believe this is a real picture of a real billboard. Save the date, return of Christ. He picked it, May 21, 2011. Oops. Uh, not the first time that's happened. In fact, some, some uh, um, cult, cults, 
that we, will, we all know and will have tried to predict the date of Jesus' return. Um, the owner of the house, back in verse, chapter 13, verse 35, is coming back, Jesus says. But we don't know when. Like a thief in the night, Paul says. We don't know when. What then must we do about the future? Well, the disciples' question of when is not the question Jesus wants us to focus on, or them. We must be wary of the attitude that looks for a sign. To demand a sign is itself a sign of unbelief. Trust Jesus. Trust him. Be ready for when he returns, whenever that might be. But don't look for signs. Jesus can, will come back at any time. So Jesus says, stand firm in him and his words, which will never pass away. Be alert and watch out for deceivers. Two things um, we don't like talking about, uh, death and the end of the world, are two things Jesus wants, wants us to consider this morning. Can I suggest, therefore, that you put serious thought into the end of the world? <laughs> it's a funny thing to say, but Jesus wants us to ask that question. He wants us to do that. Our world. Now, whenever that happens, and not only that, but serious thought into the death of the Lord Jesus, because the two belong together. For the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus is the guarantee that this world will end and is, of course, the only avenue of salvation when it does. There is no issue in life more vital, more urgent, more important than sorting out where you will be when the end comes. Friend or enemy? Will you be the person who has thought seriously about the death of Jesus? For that is why Jesus came, to prepare us for the end. Or will you be the person who gives no thought to the end of the world, to the death of Jesus, and lives your life in love with a world that is coming to an end? I'm going to pray for us. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word today. It's a hard word, and I think we feel it. And it's difficult in, um, when we see this world around us in such turmoil, but of course that's happened many times before in the history of this world. Lord, we pray that we are ready for you to return. We are ready for you uh, to come to, uh, to separate the sheep and the goats, May we be people who are sheep that follow you and trust you as our, our, our shepherd. Help us to stand firm, to be ready. And Lord, we thank you for church today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, as I said, it, there may be questions that come up and things you might want to be a clarity with as well. And maybe I rushed over something or something like that. Come and chat to me afterwards um, if you want to have a, a question or, or write it in the... Um, in the, the comment card and then I can get to it next week or I can talk to you during the week or something like that as well.